collaboration. Yeah, we are back. We are doing it again. Well, this is kind of like the detour, too. So it's collaboration. Detour. (laughs) Collaboration is off the rails. This is going good. No. No. We've just taken an alternative path. To we are we are taking the road less traveled, uh, but we're oh, gonna get <laughs> bring out the robber frost out here. Like I gotta yeah. sound intellectual real quick. Hold on, <laughs> I'll quote some poetry real quick. I got you. I know. I know. I went to college. I I, I know how to try and look smart. Um, no, You're that a poet, and you didn't know it. But. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but we are we are continuing our detour reading, uh, our addendum reading to the Red Deal uh, in collaboration with the Red Nation. Uh, we are uh, collaborating. Uh, Should money to what are we? What are we reading from? What is our detour uh, we are, of choice? We are reading from our history is the future, chapter four, the flood. Oh, well, it's actually just called flood, but it's fun to call. Call it the flood, you know, because <laughs> then it sounds like Halo, and then it sounds then it sounds like I'm gonna shoot some no. aliens in space. Well, okay, it kind of does actually. I I, it, I don't know. I don't know what you were doing. Analysis. Well, I was thinking like a biblical, like you know, flood of an area. Not, oh, oh! So we're trying to. Oh, now we're trying to sound intellectual. There, we're bringing the Bible into it. I can't have my lowbrow. I, I feel like consumers. the Bible is not that intellectual. Oh <laughs> no! I, it, you see that thing? It's huge. Uh, you know how many a lot of reasons there are in that thing. Good God! And they're all—they're real thin. They're real thin. At least seven. <laughs> anyway. uh, but before we jump into the reading this week, we are I going was gonna to say, detour. Listen yeah. to the last episode that was current events and about the Doctrine of Discovery, because at the end we try to speed read as many pages as we can out of Chapter Four, so we could have a head start here, and so David would be behind and confused. Yes, yes. I'm very good at at being behind and confused. Totally. Have you ever read Our History is the Future, David? I have not. You should. I obviously yes. <laughs> that that applies to roughly checks list a million other books as well. We are we are we are hey, Mark desperately Ruffalo going through likes them. It. Mark Ruffalo I, likes it, so it's you know Avenger I, certified. Oh, good. oh! If I read it, that's that's what I out. that's what we needed. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, that that being said, uh, current events for the week. I will kick it over to David to talk about everyone's favorite uh, loud. Alex Jones. That guy. That guy. Yeah, you don't. You don't need to talk about me. <laughs> I wish I had a better Alex Jones. That is pretty good. That's pretty good. That's no, I listen to too much Alex Jones, though. That's oh, God. Oh, God. Look, listen, listen. I, I can tell you all about him, all right? I mean, I'll play the part of Alex Jones while you tell him about my court case. <laughs> so, <laughs> an incredible... Uh, this is fake news. No. <laughs> so, Alex Jones, obviously, is being sued in a civil court um, for... It's a kangaroo you know, court, actually. They're, they're rigging it. No, sorry. Be, sorry. It's fine. <laughs> For being a he says it all the time. <laughs> he literally says that on his fucking podcast every day. It's a kangaroo court. I didn't comply with the process, so it's it's rigged. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, he's being he's being sued because the piece of shit he is made a like false flag conspiracy theory about Sandy Hook, and oh so God. the families are suing for you know defamation. Well, it's not um, necessarily that. It's that he also sent. 
a reporter, Steve Bachenik, to these people's houses to harass mm-hmm. them. He yes. would pay this man and then try to lie about him being an employee even. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Yes. So, in all of this, he apparently had said that he had never, what was it, he had never texted about or never heard of, God, what was it he hadn't heard of? He claimed something wasn't in his text messages. And his lawyer... Everything. Uh, he claimed everything. He's, I've never even said hi. Yeah, I think I, think I don't he even said know he literally number. has never texted the. I thought I thought the court case said he literally had never texted the word Sandy Hook. Oh, that's oh I it. hope that's, that's it. it. Never. That's I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that was it. Sandy Hook. That's it. And he said that he he, he swore that on the stand, right? And so then his lawyer sends everything to the other lawyer: the texts, the emails, two years of. Everything and their lawyer comes back and goes, "Is this supposed to be?" I forget the word begins with a, a p. Some like per, sounds like per, but is this supposed to be confidential? Is this supposed to be you know privilege? That's it. Is this privileged information? And then didn't get a response. And as soon as it cleared the like so many days since you asked if it was privileged information, they're like, "Oh, this is ours." Hooray, hurrah. They have no idea what they sent us. They probably heard, is this privileged information? And went, yeah, we sent them the right thing and sent them the wrong damn file or something. Yeah, you're privileged to even get to see it. <laughs> I have... I, yeah. I That's have exactly never, what he said. <laughs> I have never, never seen a lawyer so happy. He was like, oh, ho, ho, ho. Guess, like, this is... <laughs> He's what he's also got there's a uh, there's another podcast called Opening Statements, but Knowledge mm-hmm. Fight also has him on. Um, that lawyer exclusively goes on Knowledge Fight while uh, his partner goes on CNN and like with actual news broadcasters. So he likes Knowledge Fight so much because when he first started this case, right, he listened to two hundred hours of fucking Alex Jones, and he's like, there has to be a better way. So then he found knowledge fight. Like, could you imagine listening to two hours of Alex, two hundred oh, hours geez. of Alex Jones unadulterated knowledge fight? You know, takes the best parts that you want to hear, the crazy shit. You know, and and takes out like because he gets horrible with his descriptions. He likes to appeal to like grotesque imagery, yeah, a lot. And so like you get like. You, Oh, all those children burnt to a crisp and stuff like that. Sorry if that like offends anyone. I was trying to be as light as I could, but uh, he says a lot worse things than that. Trust me, because you know, obviously, he's responsible for prop uh, like uh, pushing PizzaGate to the extreme. Yeah. And uh, it was after uh, the same guy, Steve Bachenik, went into um, Comet Ping Pong or whatever the fuck it's called. Uh, <laughs> he goes in there, and then somebody comes and shoots it up. So that's cool. Yeah. Oh, and then they try uh, to lie. They even try to lie about that Pizzagate shit. Wh- really? Where, yeah. Well, because like they're going, oh yeah, it's definitely shit. There's a lot of a lot of weird stuff going on. But like then, like if you watch the like um, live stream they did of it, it's it's like the most casual experience, and they're just being weird. And so they're like, hey, you're making everybody uncomfortable. This is a place for children. Could you leave? <laughs> <laughs> and then they accuse them of being the pedophiles. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> oh, that is great. Um, but anyway, so everything was leaked. And so now in this civil case, Alex Jones is staring. I think there was two different criminal charges, but it's at least perjury. Which So oh, he takes, a, he takes yeah. a civil case and immediately gets pigged for it on a federal criminal um, 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 felony. Like, 
it's just that is fucking up hard. That is the like the worst normally a civil case comes down to is you pay other people money. And right. Now he's dealing Which he with also had to do. Felony. Forty nine yes. million dollars. Oh Forty nine million dollars. And that's punitive. So there's four mm-hmm. million in fucking uh what's it called? Damages. Yeah. So that's just like forty nine million for being a douchebag, basically. Yep. <laughs> and if, awesome. it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. <laughs> well, it, the big thing is he has so much money like stashed away. So it's like if you actually want to take him down, you have to make sure that he's draining accounts overseas. You know what I mean? Oh, for sure. Because it's like, oh, Mr. Patriot Alex Jones, of course, invests in Swiss banks. That's why he loves the Swiss so much. Like, there's like two countries he'll promote all the time, and it's America and the Swiss, because they're the only ones with guns. <laughs> the only two countries where you're allowed to have guns. <laughs> the Swiss. <laughs> he won't ever say which one, because he fucks up and says Sweden all the time. It's <laughs> so good. So he'd be like, well, the Swiss in America. And it's like, the Swiss is in a country, man. <laughs> Stop yeah. saying that. That, that. that is the perfect, though, distillation of him and, and his fascism. Is Switzerland has taken such an overtly fascist stance over the years, but they always get to be like the neutral peacekeeping guy. And he does himself as like the outsider against the against the, the uh, big, you know, corrupt um, establishment, right? And I don't take coke money, I swear. Fucking fascist. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not working with oil companies. I don't have a bunch of investments in them. I don't live in Texas. I probably have an oil rig in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> He's doing home brewing, but for oil rigging. It's it's fun. It's the classic Texas tradition. Really? It is. It's, it's, it's artisanal. It's artisanal oil drilling. Yeah. Right? And honestly, that's what they call their racist acts, too. Artisanal what? racism. Oh no, that tracks. Yeah, in, in Texas, it's artisanal racism. It's not. It's not your southern down home racism. Uh-huh. Out there, it's your artisanal racism, <laughs> especially out in the Austin area. No. <laughs> uh, right. David or Shigmani, too. Anything else current events wise that you guys wanted to hit on before we jump into the reading? Um. No, I mean, I, I, I know. I can. I could talk about knowledge fight is... more, but no. <laughs> yeah. Um obviously we're going to get into, you know, plenty with uh climate change and things like that with what we're reading um but no specific, you know, elections or, or things have really popped up. I think the biggest thing is is probably Britney Griner. Um which the obvious things to say about that is it is horrendous that she is stuck being locked up for 9 years for a teeny tiny amount of weed that she brought over herself as a drug trafficker. <laughs> yeah. And all the right-wingers are like, you love the America now. You know, and they're fucking assholes because, you know, I mean, there are people that are serving life sentences for the same amount of weed for bills that Joe Biden wrote and we're supposed to be like, oh my God, tyrannical Russia. Well, even uh, then... That doesn't like, change that that's incredibly shitty and she's obviously being taken as a political prisoner too. I'm trying to remember... Um, but the statistics just came out recently, and uh, marijuana arrests are up under Biden. Yeah, yeah. Which... <laughs> Go figure. You know? Yeah, <laughs> the man only pioneered the practice. But um, uh, uh, another thing, there's a couple. Uh, Breonna Taylor's uh, cops. Um, mm. Catching federal charges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, yes. got some charges, so that's pretty cool. Um, yes. They went into a garage and conspired. The judge said so. Hey. You know, they called him out, I guess. That's a win. Let's keep pushing, you know. We yeah. can get more wins. Um, and then the other one I was going to say, crap. Uh, 
Uh, the only other thing I've change. seen is, is oh yeah, I, I had not thought of Columbia. I was gonna say uh, Ahmed uh, Arbery. Uh, yeah, I can't suddenly remember his name. Um, Ahmed Aubrey. Ahmed Aubrey, thank you. Ahmed Aubrey's uh, one of his killers uh, was was made news articles. I guess they were reaching for sympathy. This was our Wall Street opinion piece of the week type shit, where they were like, "He's afraid he's gonna get killed in prison," and it's like, "Oh." That oh. sucks. Eat shit. <laughs> Interesting. Moving on to the weather. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good for you. I'm going to go cook some dinner. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. That, go sucks for, like that, that sucks for you. I will not be here for you. <laughs> that uh, is uh, the intersection of fucking around and finding out, my friend. Enjoy it. Well, you know, maybe someday I'll remember what I was going to say, but we can continue with the episode. Yes. yes. All <laughs> right. Well, in the meantime, Shigmani 2, are you ready to take over and continue our reading? Yeah. Uh, let, me get a, let me get a page number for our listeners, because uh, I kind of wrote stuff down in a notebook, and like I'm cross-referencing to feel super... 141. All right. Page 141. When thousands returned home after the Second World War, the enemy threatening their homelands was the very military they fought for. A country, well, and so to catch everybody up, since this is a good time to catch everybody. Last time we were talking, we were talking about um, Fool's Crow uh, mentioning the relationship in which uh, indigenous people were kind of tricked into serving overseas under the circumstances that they would be fighting with an empire to kind of like gain their trust in a way uh, I compared it to like Roman barbarians um, and that uh, when Rome was expanding into the, as a, these other places, a lot of how they would gain their cultural connections to these other places like Gaul and stuff is by uh, incorporating these barbarians, these savages, you know, this is where the terminology really stems from the, you know, um, into the, you know, empire's military, and then these same people would be the ones to overthrow it. Cough, cough, land back. Um, <clears throat> a country that demanded natives sacrifice their lives in a war now demanded the sacrifice of their best lands and their governments. Uh, what was coming up the river was a new round of dispossession, a new round of enclosure that used the most precious resource, water, as its weapon to eliminate and destroy nations, and the land in which they depended for life. However, the struggle for control over the river became not with the army corps, but with states like South Dakota, whose political elite became staunch advocates for termination. But like termination, river development met resistance. Resistance. Uh, I'm just gonna skip a syllable. <laughs> Make it go quicker. <laughs> hey, this is this is a speed read. Exactly. Um, but for those of you who don't remember, termination is the practice of basically um, writing away nations. You know, like just you make a law and they no longer exist. Isn't that cool? Mm-hmm. Um, Nixon was actually the one that ended. So that's always a fun fact I like to tell people. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, one one good thing out of Nixon. Uh, not really, because it, it was basically just like, oh, you want sovereignty? You could have it. Fuck you. And then they stopped giving us as much money. So, yay. Um, <laughs> yay. Woo. 
1910, the state of South Dakota, barely two decades old, was at the forefront of the movement to develop the Upper Missouri River. Other states, such as Montana and North Dakota, had their own plans, but none compared to the scale and organization of those in South Dakota. Early attempts had failed to garner federal support, especially from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, who had final say over any river improvement projects. In 1924, the state designated Big Bend, the largest oxbow bend in the Missouri. If you don't know what an oxbow bend is, it's just a big old U that kind of like forms a lake and a river. Um, anyway, <clears throat> there's like a big current in it. It's, it's great for hydroelectric. So, you know, they, they designated that as the site for a hydroelectric plant. So a large multi-purpose dam, according to this plan, promised cheap electricity and irrigation for the exclusive benefit of the nearby white-dominated border towns of Pierre, Winter, Chamberlain, White River, Mitchell, Huron, Redfield, and Murdo. Ignored were the very people most impacted, the Lower Brule and Crow Creek Reservations. Although the dam targeted their lands and threatened their water rights, neither indigenous nation was consulted, and both were disregarded entirely during the initial planning of the project. And when South Dakota's river development projects failed to gain the necessary federal support, the Upper Missouri Valley Development Association formed in the spring of 1933 to take up their campaign. Sorry, there's there's a dirt bike going down my road. I think. Can you hear that? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah I was like that pretty good. Oh, what is that sound? I don't think we've ever heard much come through the microphone that clearly. That was like, yeah, that yeah, was that was loud. I thought there was a bobber coming by. <laughs> Might as well have been right. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, what to say about this? Uh, obviously, hydroelectric power is better than oil, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, dams kill animals. So um, there's uh, a pipeline being built. I wish I could remember when. I think it's called the TSX pipeline. But um, yep. I, I, I wish I could get for sure. I think you should follow me on Twitter at Bands Island. Um, but, uh, you know, I share a bunch of different stuff. But basically, uh, they're pumping illegally during spawning of sockeye salmon. And so the salmon are being blocked from um, going up where they need to in order to spawn, which is going to ultimately affect. The salmon run next year, which then hurts indigenous peoples and also subsistence. Well, white people who live subsistently, you know, like a lot of people aren't aware of how many, you know, rugged outdoorsmen you know, are trying to live off of fish they catch themselves and, and like animals they hunt themselves, which is a better way to live than like going down to your grocery store and buying industrial meat or impossible meat. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, and 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 we're talking like I mean, there's obviously the the people that like get the RVs and then try to YouTube. We're talking like the people that are actually out there really doing it because there are plenty of people that that. Do well, it's that not home. even like out there really doing it. I mean, like most of my neighbors around here, you know, they at least hunt a deer to yeah. reduce their meat consumption. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. well, and well, like maybe they're like here, in Missouri too. Yeah, sure. Oh, I bet. Yeah, I I got a couple friends from down there that moved up here, and it's like, yeah, y'all mm-hmm. fit right in. <laughs> well, and then any any river, I mean, Burbis, Merrimack, whatever, you can go down, and there's plenty of people that got, like, catfish lines strung up all the time and shit like that. Ooh, catfish. I bet it's great down there. You can't really get good catfish 
Because most catfish are in, like, dirty, dirty rivers. Like, you can go noodling or whatever, but I wouldn't oh, recommend eating it. You know? Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. no, no. Um, what you do is you just got to transfer buckets and, like, clear and, and replace, like, four times. And then once the water's clear, you you scale it. And they're really easy to scale because I've almost got a skin layer. And then they're mm-hmm. really hard to debone. You debone it and you go. Yeah. Well, no. I'm this just, has I just been mean, fish like, cooking with Mark's Madness. I was gonna say, I, fucking I don't think you understand how much <laughs> auto industry poisons. Oh, fish. you mean really dirty river? No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I live in Michigan. Nasty, but it's not like <laughs> man-made poison nasty. No, yeah, I live in Michigan. I'm the sure. Flint I'm sure river some exists. of it is. We have freaking Monsanto down here, but not most. Of oh, it. oh my! Well, everybody has Monsanto. Right? They're turning the freaking frogs gay. Sorry, I could I could go into that story though. It's actually interesting, funny story. It's actually about how Roundup chemicals are causing animals to become more hermaphroditic. But ever since Alex Jones started saying that they're turning the freaking frogs gay thing, it's turned into a joke. But the researcher actually he's quoting, you know, well misquoting, you know, uh, was only allowed to do one um, test ever, and then when he reported his results. They lobbed the company, Monsanto lobbied the uh, Virginia government uh, to change it so you have to have at least two scientific studies, and then they just never let him on the land again. Oh, geez. So then oh they produced God. their own two studies, and now that's the official studies in law. Because you have oh. to have at least two studies to be considered. Welcome to America. That's Monsanto. the story of how they're turning the frogs gay. So anyway... This site, sorry, there's some weird like transitions back to the book each time. That is a great site. That is a yeah. So this is how we're turning the frogs gay. Back to our very serious reading. <laughs> these these are going to be the smoothest goddamn gears by the time we're done with this. <laughs> oh it will God. be polished clean. Anyway, so this site, uncannily, or perhaps purposely, was a few miles from where. Um, the well, like us, the Lakota discovered Lewis and Clark's expedition that was attempting to sneak through our land without, um, yeah, paying up. Come on, come on. <laughs> We're the Ochente Shaka Wing. You gotta, you gotta pay something. Anyway, <laughs> um, so it would be um, May sixteenth, nineteen thirty-seven, that the chairman of the Lower Brule, Ruben Estes, wrote to the Republican congressman Francis Casey. Where he supported the uh, the dam, but questioned the council's exclusion from planning, like the tribal council's exclusion from its planning, and ex- he he also expressed you know these newfound powers in the Indian Reorganization Act government, which if you guys don't remember, you know we've kind of like alluded to this already in our conversations, but I guess I should recap from last time. You should definitely go listen to that episode. Uh, the IRA is the Indian Reorganization Act, which is basically under the New Deal. Franklin Roosevelt decided to steal a bunch of land, force us to give up our traditional governments in exchange for, like, uh, amenities and being able to, like, apply for loans and various other uh, things, like uh, actually being able to participate in the court systems and stuff like that. Like, um, so some of these so new th- powers... this is basically, like, the progenitor of the IMF. I think the IMF might be before it, but I'm not sure when it came about. It might be hmm. the progenitor. You might be right. That's an interesting line of thought that we should explore. Well, I, I'm going to explore. Actually, hey, 
Side note, y'all interested in joining a writing group? Anyway, uh, <laughs> talk to me after this episode. <laughs> but um, I, I don't know. Your perspectives might be interesting because that that's an interesting line of thought. Um, but basically, so one of, like you know these new gained powers from having an IRA government because um, the Lower Brule is actually um, the first ever Ochete Shakoween nation to adopt an IRA government, the second ever in the U.S. to adopt it. So the you know the this is early in this reorganization period, and you know this is where we start to see why tribes might give up their traditional forms of government. You know, it's not necessarily that. Oh, hey, uh, you know, it's better. It's that this was a way to actually negotiate and, you know, get um, concessions and what was promised in treaties. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, he began to question the legality of developing uh, a dam on the reservation without the consent of the people of any of the reservations affected along the river. Because... Um, like we were mentioning in last episode, um, the way the treaties work out is that um, the borders are defined by where the shoreline hits the other side of the river. So that means the treaties are defined in relations to the water, not the land. And so when we're only forced to give up the land, we never relinquish our control of the waterways. So continued... <laughs> I hope that makes sense. You no, know, that I'm makes trying sense. to like, I'm trying to like throw in a bunch of like treaty law right now. <laughs> Always good to have. Um, I've learned from Crow Dog. <laughs> That's like a real story, but um, so uh, uh, to quote Nick, they did so for pragmatic reasons to counter attempts by state and federal agencies to lay claim to develop the Missouri River. Um. This government enabled them to halt development, employ legal counsel, and apply for federal loans. Those are three of the big ones. You know, federal loans is especially a big one for, uh, you know, a people in absolute, well, <laughs> that went from desperation to mere poverty, as Vine Deloria said in our last episode. Um, <laughs> great quotes. Quick, quick interjection just for a, uh, for a f- quick fact check that we got done. Um, the IRA uh was started in 1934 the imf started in 1945 so this did predate the imf uh, we should look into that because like if you look into like uh the way like the middle east unfolds mm-hmm. it's indian war stuff you know like a lot of it like you can almost always look back to oh where did they come up with this stuff oh colonization that's mm-hmm. where they came up with that well it's like scalping yeah. they came up with an ireland you know like Britain brought it over here. Um, you know? It wasn't. I I know what you're talking about. It actually so Britain brought it over, but it was from Central Europe because they did actually find that it was like a hundred years before people had gone even over um, the Atlantic Ocean that it was happening in. I think it was like it was either like Eastern Germany or Western Poland or something like that. That it. Was well, happening. I'd always heard that it came from Ireland. That's right, but. I'd be interested to look into, like, the deeper history of it. It's just, like, you look into the American side of it, and you get your fill. Yeah. Yeah. You get your fill. (laughs) Well, like, they would fly, um, the original American flag was Indian scalps sewn together. Mm. Fun facts. 
Uh, (laughs) Well, that was like the sign that we're settlers, you know. (laughs) That's why I call it the original American flag. It's kind of hyperbolic, but, you know. Um, this, uh, on June 1st, 1937, uh, Casey responded to SS agreeing that the Big Ben site, quote, is right there in your reservation. You're entitled to first consideration, which ended with Laura Brule applying for loans to build their own dam, um, for their own benefit through the BIA. However, Casey had different, uh, had other ideas for Big Ben, um, which, quote, could mean much more to national offense to Indian rehabilitation, and to the general welfare of Central South Dakota if they were to build it as the state. Right. And so 1937 to 1940, the Secretary of uh, Interior, Harold Ickes, uh, Ickes? I don't know. Ickes? Uh, <laughs> it's a white person name, and I'm having a hard time. I was about to say, sounds right. <laughs> sure. Uh, favored Lower Brulez planned uh, that would increase BIA and Department of Interior of power over the river. Um, <clears throat> however, the Army Corps rejected both plans on the basis of not wanting to relinquish authority to the feds or tribes. The only agreement Department of Interior... Uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Army Corps had was that the development of the river would happen with or without the indigenous consent. Um, quote, to continue on with the reading, see, I, I, I abridged some pages. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost out of my notes, though. <laughs> this is a week's worth of notes, and I'm almost out of it because, like, taking care of a kid's hard when you have, like, a million other things to do. But, um, Lower Brule's initial opposition was consistent with other indigenous nations' earlier attempts to protect their water rights. In the 1908 Winters decision, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Fort... I'm going to say Belknap. And I'm going to say you're right, because I can't see it, so I have no way to refute this. Yeah, 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 exactly. Smiling and nodding. Like we said, smiling and nodding. Smile away, boys. Smile away. Can you, like, splice in the penguins of Madagascar right there? But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I will do my best. The Fort Belknap reservations claim to water rights over white farmers' effort to control the flow of the Milk River, a tributary of the Missouri River in Montana. The court ruled that even if Fort Belknap had given up its f- uh, fertile farmer, fertile former lands, sorry, geez, <laughs> the alliteration there. Why did that trip me up? Anyway, the fertile former lands in exchange for arid ones, which were according to the court adequate for nomadic, uncivilized people, that their occupancy of those lands was in- inconsistent with the federal government's desire to have them become, well, to have them, quote, become a pastoral and civilized people, uh, end quote. Put simply, indigenous people retained quantifiable water rights if and only if the water was used in accordance with the civilizing mission of the federal government. The decision became known as the Winters Doctrine. The doctrine holds that, however diminished current reservations boundaries may be, tribes retain senior reserved rights to water flowing through the originally defined boundaries established by treaty, statute, or executive order. But what this means is federal or state alteration slash disrupt, well, slash ration or disruption of the flow of the river without indigenous consent violates the spirit of the Winters Doctrine. 
Quote, the 1944 Flood Control Act, which authorized the Pick Sloan Plan, permitted the Army Corps only to construct dams, not to expunge indigenous jurisdiction, treaty rights, or water rights. In less than precise language, Section 4 of the Act opened the river for, quote, public use and recreational purposes, unquote. It didn't strip Crow Creek, Lower Brule, Standing Rock, Cheyenne River, uh, Yankton, Fort Berthold, or any indigenous nation for that matter, of their political authority over the river. Regardless, from the 1950s to the 1960s, the Army Corps condemned reservation lands under uh, eminent domain and Congress awarded compensation to the affected reservations. Back to the book because I'm out of notes. Yeah, but just just a side note though, you know, I mean, eminent domain is it, people hear about that in, in the Constitution, which, by the way, like people look at other other governments like social government. Oh, government control things, blah 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 blah. Uh, this government has eminent domain; they can just take any time, but they never seem to use it to like I don't know take over a medical industry during a pandemic or anything. It's always just to or destroy like- indigenous people's lands. Seize and nationalize Amazon. Yeah, um, yeah. There's never that, right? <laughs> like, it, it, I mean, the way it's written, it it seems like it's more for that. But when you know who wrote it and everything that was going on at the time and the whole purpose of it, and then you see how it's used through history, it's only there basically to steal lands from indigenous people. That that that's all it's there for. Exactly. <laughs> so, and this is how they did it through public works that are supposedly good for us. Um, neither the Flood Control Act, which took the land, nor the Congressional Acts addressing damages, which rewarded compensation for taking the land, explicitly extinguished indigenous jurisdiction, and neither authorized nor provided any compensation for the Army Corps taking the Missouri River itself. Compensation was provided only for taking the land, but not the water. Since then, the Ochete Shakuin have contended that the Missouri River and its shoreline were never legally ceded. And according to statute, they are right. The Army Corps alteration of the flow of the river by damming it directly violates both the Winters Doctrine and the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty. But regardless of the treaty, rights and sheer legality, the Army Corps proceeded anyway. For Dakotas and Lakotas, water rights are defined by treaty. For example, Article 2 of the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty delineated the eastern boundary of Sioux Territory, quote-unquote, as beginning as the, quote-unquote, low water mark of the east bank. As in, you know, if you're looking at that river, on the east side would be the white side, and so the lower bank there, that's where our land ends. So all the way to the other side of the border. It includes the water. Includes Yeah. Just to heavily emphasize that, which is why you can't build pipelines wherever the fuck you want. Anyway, <sighs> go blow them up. No, I no, don't do that. Um, <laughs> not actionable. Not actually, because I can't legally say that. Uh, in contrast, the tribal constitutions for the Cheyenne River, Standing Rock, and Lower Brule <laughs> Reservations delineated reservation boundaries according to the 1889 Sioux Agreement. The agreement divided West River tribes into five distinct reservations. Pine Ridge, Rosebud, Cheyenne River, Lower Brule, and Standing Rock. And defined the eastern boundary of the three reservations bordering the river, Standing Rock, Cheyenne River, and Lower Brule, as beginning at the center of the main channel, the Missouri River. 
Regardless of the 1889 agreement's diminishment of the reservation lands, all these reservations in the Achete Shekhoin still possess powers under the Winter's Doctrine to the Missouri River according to the original 1868 treaty boundaries, as long as the water is used in a quote-unquote civilized manner. Winter Winter's rights take effect on the date reservations are created by federal authority and are considered unquantifiable or, according to the court's decision, uncircumscribed allowing for the perpetual benefit and use for the permanent indigenous homeland. According to Diné scholar Melanie K. Yazzie, in her analysis of the 2020, the 2012, sorry, I'm so, it's 2022, so I was like, clearly this is recent. But of the, <laughs> the 2012 Navajo Hopi Little Colorado River water settlement, subsequent Supreme Court decisions have interpreted this uncircumscribed quality to mean a minimal need required by the reservation. In other words, indigenous nations are only entitled to water they can use for civilized purposes. The Those purposes are quantified or put another way, indigenous sovereignty is quantified according to the water usage and degrees of civilized usage. Anything falling outside these qualifications is considered surplus, unused, or wasted. The rest can be measured and siphoned away to meet the need of non-native interests. After each party quantifies their needs, water that flows through reservation or treaty lands is then by no small feat of the imagination not entirely owned by indigenous nations. The result is that indigenous nations can only use a restricted amount, in some instances a fraction of a percentage, of the water flowing through their territory. Settler agricultural interest in water because... um, Settler agricultural interests in water, because they are so insatiable, have always outweighed the bare survival of indigenous peoples. On the plains of the Missouri River Basin, irrigation is necessary for agriculture, which as a mode of production personifies settler colonialism. It's sedentary and mostly permanent, it reproduces itself, and it always needs more land and water. As it expands, it eats away at indigenous territory, destroying fauna and flora, and annihilating indigenous substance economies. This is not to say indigenous people were not pastoralists, farmers, or ranchers before and during colonization. Prior to colonization, most indigenous societies were agricultural, not hunter-gatherer, which, with great affinities to domestic plants such as corn... Indeed, by the time the Pick Sloan Plan was proposed, Missouri River indigenous nations had already developed successful native-run cattle ranching enterprises and small-scale agricultural projects, often reflecting communal practices. These small-scale economies allowed indigenous nations to resist and challenge the further diminishment of their reservation lands by preventing the need to sell it off to feed themselves. Or, in nowadays... People are renting it for grazing land and stuff like that. So it's like we have like seven acres or something out on my res, but my grandma is in charge of it and she rents it out and we get two dollars for it yearly. You know who set that price? The BIA. Oh, oh boy. Good. Always yeah. good to hear from the BIA. You're not allowed to set your own price. The BIA decides it all. Isn't that awesome? Because they know that's, best. Because we're yeah. we're too ignorant to discuss business. It's it's a free market, and that's what sets everyone free, unless you're the person you know, that I just, is I just don't in the speak way English of, of the well. rich people's market. I just, so. I just don't speak English that well. Is the problem? <laughs> <laughs> that's literally the reasoning behind those laws. Is oh, that we God. didn't understand English? Oh, Jesus, oh, that's awesome. God. 
Yeah. They t- you fix that with a translator, not with some douchebag nope, running things. Nope, 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 nope. Uh, legally we define we us as idiots. They, they, That's the way yeah. to go. Yeah, we, we all know that they weren't they weren't actually meaning what they say. That was an excuse. So Lenico L. Lee, a Lakota writer and citizen of Cheyenne River Reservation, remembers the river bottomlands before the floods. Drawing on memories of her childhood, she recalls what life was like before the Oha oh Ohai Oahe Damn took her lands. I see a river shoreline of men and women, young and old, carrying water, picking berries, gathering firewood, fishing from the shore, wading in the sloughs of for cattail root, gathering teas of so many kinds, making toys for children from the fallen leaves and branches, telling stories of how we came to be a people, making furniture, women telling river stories to their grandchildren, children learning the gifts of the river. I hear men singing. I hear women old and young, singing as they work and live among the trees. I hear children's laughter, too. Pick Sloan's massive dam projects, for instance, quite literally snatched the food from the mouths of indigenous people. Indigenous sovereignty could be felt through the hunger in one's stomach, as was the case for the Ochete Shakuin, who had their most productive lands taken in this sense. In this sense, indigenous sovereignty can be calculated according to their water rights, which, according to Yazi, face unlimited limitations in federal courts. That is, settled law has never expanded the material basis of indigenous sovereignty, land, and water. It has only eroded it by placing upon it endless restrictions. When it comes to water rights, it is not just the legal character of Indians that it is defined. Settlers, too, become legal subjects with a vested interest in the taking of indigenous water. But differently, in cases where indigenous peoples possess water rights according to federal statute, executive order, or treaty, settler communities, to fulfill their needs, are dependent on diminishing those rights, with or without indigenous consent. Thus, indigenous water rights are calculated first and foremost according to settler needs. And that's really the big problem. It's like, even if we start to be considered in these projects and stuff... The project ultimately isn't about our betterment. It's always about white betterment. And almost every single time, it has huge detriments on our way of living. And our way of living is more sustainable. So, you know, it's just a matter of, in a growing age of climate change, who has the more just claim to their way of life? The people constantly killing the planet. The people trying to restore it. I don't know. Should we continue this endless consumerism? Or should we perhaps look at cutting back? But what what will people do if they don't have 14 brands of pre-grated Parmesan cheese? Oh my god. I don't know. When people tell me they buy pre-grated, I'm just like... First off, you've never been even- Like, you can all... Well, like, so with Wick, you could only get blocks of cheese, which it's like, I don't mind. I'll gladly shred my own cheese. Happily. You know, and then, like, just, like, you can't even get the sawdust in a can, whatever it's called, the craft shit. Yeah, well, on on top of that, that like, Wick. On top of that, um, if you know, like, there's, obviously, you can find, like, a a block of parm cheese if you're really going for Parmesan and you can find one for like $15 something ridiculous but you mm-hmm. could find them for like 
four bucks. It's like as cheap as the fucking shaker. But usually yeah, with, yeah. Uh, with WIC, they, they send out those uh, packages and they just called it government cheese. It's like a white American cheese that you get a big oh, no, block no. of. See, Michigan's a little nicer. They give you a, you give you a nice little cart. It's like an EVT, but they just limit what yeah. you can buy at the store. So it's oh, like, nice. that's pretty nice. So you, you just go in there and you can get most most cheeses, I think. Oh, I don't know if government I think cheese it's is still brand a thing anyway. Based. Yeah. Like, I don't think you could go in there and be like, can I get some Belgiasio or whatever it is? <laughs> I, I don't speak Italian, so sorry, Italians listening. I don't know, but you can get that brand for like three bucks now. Like it's Really? It's, you, oh, it, if you're getting the right, if if you go to... Um, With how many like farms are near you? Because I feel like I'm close enough to Wisconsin that my cheese prices are weird. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Also, any spot that's a food desert, you're gonna run into anything. So I don't know, like if you go. Well, back cheese is different. Ribs, cheese is actually oh. really cheap here because Wisconsin's cool. so close to me. Wisconsin's oh, the cheese capital of the world. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a big <laughs> cheesy mess. <laughs> well, so in the winter they use the salt from making cheese curds for their roads. Really? Isn't that crazy? Well, yeah. I didn't even know. At that. least in Green Bay I, they do. The, I'll have to ask. I have a, a friend um, from. Uh, he he lived in Oshkosh before moving down to Ooh. Missouri. That well, I Oshkosh, with. I bet would. Oshkosh is a pretty big farm area, you know. Yeah, and uh, but it's so funny because he he complains. He's like, "All oh, your cheese at the grocery store, it's all shit here." And we're like, "What? There's like 500 varieties. What do you want?" He's like, "It's all shit." Well, no, <laughs> like, Serengento is like in every store, and that's a Wisconsin cheese too. You know? <laughs> I don't know. He just thinks all the cheese is crap. Well, the cheddar specifically, I guess. That's I don't know. A lot of cheddar is shit. To be honest, as somebody who's like, you, you know, you ever like going on a road trip, you're like, oh man, I really just need a place to stop. You see a cheese store, you stop at the cheese store. I don't know, I like eating yeah. cheese even though it messes up my stomach. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so anyway, the undercurrents of the Pick Sloan plan also originated. Nathan, are you here? You just I am here. Okay, yeah, you just... no cheese opinion is all. Yeah, you're just. Like, I just have no cheese. <laughs> yeah, you're just like chilling out there, like spacing out. No cheese in video whatsoever. No cheese. I'm sorry. I'm yeah, sorry. I enjoy it. He's off camera. He's eating cheese right now. That's why. Am I off camera? Is it not? Okay. No, I, I'm just no, 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 no. You're on camera. You're just sort of like staring off into space. And I was like, are you frozen right now? <laughs> I, have that, I have that effect sometimes. Yes. That. Yes. Apologies. So the undercurrents of the Pix Sloan plan also originated from the centralization of the power of the federal government to imagine and enact theories of space through land policy. The practice became the practice began as early as the 1785 land ordinance and continued into the 19th and early 20th centuries as federal authorities worked to know, map, reorganize, and manage land as territory. Water management was vital to these policies, and as Western expansion and the taking of indigenous lands confronted the problem of creating irrigation systems to make settler life possible in arid environments. After removing indigenous peoples, the first task was to induce colonization. Federal policies such as the 1862 Homestead Act encouraged agricultural settlement on dry western lands unsuitable for settler farming techniques developed in the east pushed by the railroad lobby to spur settlement and therefore the need for railroads to transport agricultural goods, the 1877 Desert Land Act amended the Homestead Act and provided federal money for Western irrigation projects. 
The Northern Pacific Railway, for example, also opened colonization offices. First off, colonization offices. Yeah, I, was about, I was just about to say, I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's you know, you know how like Starbucks has a Pinkerton running their global uh fucking yes, the global like labor or marketing or some shit like yeah that. whatever the fucking thing is Th- this is that you know what I mean? yeah. <laughs> so they have oh they, god they, and all these people are like how are the pinkertons still around well because who did they serve of course they're still first, the first off the pinkertons are just the fbi so as long as the fbi are around the pinkertons are around you know the pinkertons are just private fbi who are allowed to do uh extra do judicial things that's it's it's like Blackwater it. to the military or yes. or the three percenters to Custom and Border Patrol. Or the three percenters to the FBI. Oh, I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to talk about that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we're going to go down the Alex Jones rabbit hole right now. But, um, <laughs> He's back. They opened up colonization colonization offices in Germany, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, and England to entice European immigrants to settle the the northern plains and therefore to create a demand for railroad transportation. That's why there's a lot of Germans in the Dakotas. Hmm. Yeah. Or, you know, even even, um, the Germans in Milwaukee and Germantown, like, they came over during that era. Well, you know, they would have came over to the, you know, and then they would have went back, is basically how it happened. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I, I like the Midwest. <laughs> One of the few people. <laughs> uh, where were we? Uh, Theodore, no. Conservation policy influenced by President Theodore Roosevelt at the turn of the century led to the creation of the Bureau of Reclamation in 1902 to provide for the irrigation of arid lands in the West. Land policy was the legal justification for the sometimes unwilling shock troops of colonization, white European settlers. Settlement and settlers literally made legal and operational contemporary water law that depends so heavily on the theft of indigenous water. Public land for public good was highly subsidized federal endeavor for private enterprise, racial exclusion, and indigenous elimination. <sighs> for, okay. Nick, if you're listening, <laughs> chill the fuck out. <laughs> These are all like four <laughs> syllable words. Fuck off. <laughs> you know what I mean? Economy <laughs> of language, Nick. Economy of language. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, look, it's good. It's good. Just chill out. Um, okay, where were we? <laughs> uh, one and a half million white families gained title to 246 million acres of indigenous lands, an area nearly the size of California and Texas combined, under the Homestead Act with the added value of federally subsidized irrigation. A quarter of adults alive today in the United States are direct descendants of those who profited from the Homestead Act's legacy of exclusive racialized property ownership and economic mobility, a legacy that categorically excluded black, indigenous, and other non-white peoples. A quarter. 60% of the United States is white. A quarter of the adult population. We're talking about white people. All right? Nearly all adult white people are direct descendants. Okay? There is none of this my ancestor shit. Okay? Your ancestors are probably involved. Just deal with it, okay? Just deal with it. Just, just deal with it. It's okay. Just acknowledge it. Just go, uh-huh. And I'm going to do better. 
That's all you have to do. Yep. Every day you wake up, and if anybody brings it up and you go, uh-huh, and we can do better. That's all you have to do. You don't have to go, oh, no, not mine. Oh, no, I, I'm a good person. We're not talking about you. We're talking about the people who literally got paid $20 for per scalp. That's great. Great. Hold on. So, okay, I, I don't have a phone right now. It's charging. Would one of you want to look up what the rate of exchange from 1892, that's the closure of the frontier, for $20 is in today's money? I think it's like $500 or something like that. But imagine getting like 500 bucks for a scout. You go kill someone. Oh, David looked like he had it. <laughs> You're like, oh, I get it. No, I, I thought I had it, and then it was not. It was the wrong version. It wasn't the U.S. year. It was a different currency. Hold on. Uh, what you do is you transfer into that currency, and you turn that currency into U.S. dollars today. $651. Dude, if I was getting paid $651 to take some white people scalps, I'm taking some white people scalps. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I oh. I could use six fifty right now. I could use. Seems. I about to say. Seems like a pretty reasonable. Seems like a pretty reasonable exchange. Kill yes, one I could dude. Also find it. It's finally, and I I get the same number six fifty one twenty three. So yeah, kill one person, you get seven hundred bucks. It's legal. Okay. Anyway, I'm just saying that's better than fucking slaving away at fucking McDonald's. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm talking about scalping people. Anyway, I was about to say this took a dark turn. Look, the poverty's dark. Okay, <laughs> support my Patreon, please. <laughs> um, where and are speaking we? of supporting the Patreon, it is time to work our way into plugs. Is it? It is. It is. Uh, before we do, I do want to do, because we fact-checked ourselves before, too. What I was thinking of, where it was like East Germany or West Poland, is the Visigoths. Um, so, there is, I had read before, in like the 1300s, there was um, like actual evidence of Visigoths like scalping, and they have it recorded. And I can't find that source, but even in a run-of-the-mill milquetoast source like Wikipedia, it cites a French abbot um, who pointed specifically to Visigoth code. People don't know Visigoths were a Germanic. They're the two Goths split into two kingdoms, Visa and Ostrogoths. Ostrogoths took over Italy in the quote-unquote collapse of the Roman Empire, and Visigoths took over the Iberian Peninsula. So these are like eventually Spanish and Portuguese people, but they were East German initially. And um, and so this is people that existed like 15th century at the latest. Columbus sailing at the latest, and they were in Spain and Portugal. And they had a code, and capillos um, is hair in Latin, cutum is skin, and detrahere is detract. And it's the capillos et cutum detrahere, the, the code of hair and skin detraction. Um, in the Visigoth Code, so Send yeah, that to this the stuff existed. Okay. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, so um, again, Visigoth Code had it before the before Columbus sailed the ocean blue or whatever fucking little rhyme you want to do. That's um, fucking wild. Yeah, no, you missed that joke last episode, David. You need to listen to that one. Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> I literally made that joke. <laughs> yeah. Well, that being said, oh, um, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. Yes, Shugmanitu. 
Oh, I was I was gonna say, wait. When do I? When am I supposed to plug? <laughs> you are plugging right this second. You are plugging oh, now. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Um, um, uh, so uh, follow me on Twitter, like I said earlier, at Bands Island. You can follow the Red Nation at at the underscore Red underscore Nation, uh, all on Twitter, and then it's like the Red Nation movement on Instagram or something like that. I think we have an Instagram for Bands of Turtle Island. I don't know it. I don't update it. Um, somebody made it. Uh, I don't. I'm lazy. Anyway. Um, you can support my Patreon at Cicadas Tin Can. The link will be in the description. Uh, Rec Bay is an indigenous community over the Australia area that's been trying to raise $10,000 for, uh, water relief for PFAS chemicals that poison their water. Um, you know, like fish are growing second heads and shit. Um, yeah, yeah, they deserve your help. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's only been two years. Um, anyway, uh, what else? Um, Oh, uh, I have a cash app, uh, Zicato's Tin Can, with the cash sign at the front. You know, you could help me out. Uh, like I said, uh, really struggling. Got a baby and stuff. We just got a paycheck for the first time in a while. And, God, it's just, there's not enough money with how inflation's going. All I'm saying. <laughs> Jesus. But, um, uh, let's see. What else? What else do I got? Um. Oh, yeah, uh, you can go to the Red Nation Patreon, which is uh, Red Media Press, uh, and that money goes to helping mutual aid on Pine Ridge and in the Southwest. Um, it goes to paying for, like, microphones for the Red Media crew. Um, so, like, this beautiful mic I'm on right now is paid for by Red Media. Um, what else? Oh, uh, they just went to Hawaii to do this deep ecology project or something like that um, for Red Hill. Uh, they're there right now. All updated as it goes on. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, other than that, uh, I think that's that. That's that's about all the plugs I have right now. Uh, oh, I also read Decolonial Marxism by Walter Rodney. It just dropped. That should be your next book, I'm just saying. Hell yeah. Uh, well, for the Marx Madness side of this equation, uh, there are a number of different ways you can reach out to us. We are all, we have an email address, marxmadnesspod at gmail.com. We also have a Twitter on the, the, the Blasted Hell site. It is at marxmadnesspod. We retweet stuff. And we'll occasionally let you know when an episode comes out. But we trust that you figured out how to find episodes without Twitter by this point. You figured it out. You're here. So it's I've fine. I've lost my weary way of those, of those tweets. But <laughs> sure enough, every week there's episodes. They're, they're always there. They're always there. Never missed a week. Uh, you can also reach out to us if you go to our Twitter. And on our bio uh, on Twitter is a link to our Discord server. Uh, our Discord server is where Nathan spends most of his time day-to-day, and David pops in on command, and Shukmani 2's there, too. The whole gang, if you will, can be found in the Mark's Madness Pod Discord if you need to find us all in one place at one time. Uh, and so that is just a great community that I am proud to be a part of, and I'm happy with uh, with what we've created there and the, the support that they give each other uh, and me when I need it, when I'm having a really shitty day. Um, so <laughs> that being said, David, it is time for a disclaimer. Yeah, so hey, welcome back. I'm, I'm back here. I'm disclaiming. So anyway, um, as far as the Mark Manna side of this, again, uh, this started all because Nathan came up to me and was like, hey, I want to read Capital. Let's let's do this shit um, because, you know, theory, history, uh, those are things you want to read in a group. You want to make sure you're getting uh, more input, better context, something 
chance to review over it, making sure you understand it. And that's best done, especially in a um, political education or reading group in a party you're organizing in. Uh, Nathan didn't have that and just basically came up to me and said, you read this book before. Let's do it. And we said, okay. There's two of us, kind of a small group. We'll record it just in case. And lo and behold, here we are. And ever since then, our vision has been, hopefully you are in that party, you are in that cadre, you are in that organization, and you're in that political education or reading group, and you're reading these works along with us. And we're another source of input, another source of context, another voice in the room. Uh, Let's say that's not happening, and your groups are, you know, reading something shorter or something more focused on, you know, a project they're on, or maybe just reading at a different pace than us. And so you're reading it on your own. Hopefully we can be that reading group. We can give that chance review we can give that extra context um, things like that and let's say that's not happening and it's either a book like this where we're reading more word for word uh, including with some detours like an enhanced ebook uh, or it's a book we summarize more whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you because we want these works out there guiding your actions uh, when you turn theory into revolutionary action that's a phenomenon called praxis by definition, of course, that can't exist without theory, and theory is completely useless without praxis. They go hand in hand; they are tied at the hip. Amen. Woo. As always. That being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod in collaboration with the Red Nation. My name is Nathan. My name's David. I'm Shungmani too. And we will talk to y'all next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.